Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. And on this week's show, which we are super excited about, Jasmine will be joined by Christopher Sebastian, who is a writer and commentator on our very, very skewed relationships with animals from a particular viewpoint that emphasizes racial, sexual, and political identity. And he is just a fascinating person. Yeah, I really loved this interview so much. And I realize I say that a lot, but this was particularly special. And I love that it's airing around Pride because we do get into some issues relating to LGBTQ stuff. By the way, speaking of which, I have a talk coming up on June 14th that we will link to in the show notes. It is virtual. It is free. And it is part of the Compassion Consortium, which is partly led by Victoria Moran. This is a talk on LGBTQ activism and animal rights and where the connections are for me. So I hope you can make that. So before we get to our interview with Christopher, in which he does a much better job of explaining those connections than I do, uh, I wanted to briefly check in with you because you have this show that you can't stop talking about. And I figured if you're going to subject me to your constant talking about it, you might as well subject everyone to it. Tell us about it. Well, it's a little bit of an exaggeration because I only just found the show today. And some of you are probably watching it. And a lot of you are probably familiar with the Dodo and and follow it on Instagram. You know, it's all like feel-good stories about animals. If you're not following it and you want to feel good, I highly recommend it. But I didn't realize that a TV show. I was looking around on Hulu. It's called Adoption Day. And you can imagine what it's, it's like three, in every episode, it's three stories of some dog getting, or a cat. Or maybe there are other animals too, because they don't just cover dogs and cats. They, they cover companion animals more broadly. This really like, great story about, oh God, some of them are so, some of them are stupid. Like there was one where these people travel across the country so they can get an Airedale puppy because the puppy was rescued. The puppy's mother was rescued from a puppy mill. And, I mean, all right, it's not stupid, but you know, it's not really my, my thing, like the whole breed thing. But some of the other ones, oh my God, they just, well, I won't go on and on because you can imagine. Well, it the blind pit, the blind pit bull. Oh my God, she was my so favorite. sweet. She was in the shelter for six years, which is really a problem. But but then she found her home. It's always nice to have feel good things that we can point people to because so many of the things we point people to are just like depressing. Although we have the inherent hopefulness of uh, many of our of our guests, I would say. So, uh, I guess like I'm a little shy on hope these days, but I'm, I'm trying. I'm I'm working on it. I'm trying not to go too dark. Yeah, you know that's actually something that I talked to Christopher about. We actually talked about hope in the bonus segment, and it was a really moving moment. It was actually just really raw and sad, but it was also sort of beautiful. So. You know what? Let's just play that right now, that part of the bonus segment. What gives you hope? This is a difficult question. Hope is not easy to come by. I'm sorry. (laughs) I think we're having this conversation for the listeners the weekend after 13 people were shot and 10 people were killed in Buffalo, New York, in one of the most shocking mass shootings in what has been what feels like a lifetime of mass shootings. 
in the United States. And this is one of the occasions where the shooter actually said so explicitly in his manifesto that he is racist and he did this because the victims were Black. Because the victims were Black. And this is not a weekend where I am swimming in hope. But that being said, our alternative is to give up. And I refuse to cede victory over to violence, to bigotry, to authoritarianism, to fascism, to hate. And I don't put that off on everybody. I don't make that other people's job because I know that some people have given up. But I think that it's important that I don't give in to that cynicism because those people didn't deserve it. That victory is not deserved by the authoritarian fascists. And I think that we're worth it. Oh, I wish I could give you a big hug. Uh, hard to believe that that horrible shooting happened and so many others have happened just since we recorded that. What a what a moment. Yeah, and you know, I really appreciate what he says about hope. And that's kind of like what I think what we try to do when we say using hope as a strategy, we don't mean that all you have to do is hope and things will get better which, you know, that's, that's not a good way to use hope as a strategy. Using hope as a strategy, in my mind, is like if you, you have to like kind of manufacture hope in order to keep you going and, and in order to keep you, you know, as an activist. And it's just hard these days. It's just hard. I mean, you know, aside from everything else, the underlying climate stuff is, is just really overwhelming me. But you you did something very hopeful when it comes to climate, didn't you? Well, I have talked a little bit in the past about the process of net zeroing our house and more in my house. And I wrote an article. It was half half first person, half reporting for Yahoo Lifestyle. And it is much more in-depth than I've gotten previously about the process of making my home net zero. And you know, not a lot has been written about this in the media. There have been a lot of blogs by companies that are focusing on this kind of eco upgrades, but it was a very in-depth piece about like everything we had to piece together and also about how people who aren't ready to go fully net zero, mostly because of finances or other logistical reasons, can start somewhere and it it offers some examples of places where you can start if this is of interest to you. By the way, the last time I had this covered in a fairly prominent way, which was for the local NPR here in Rochester called WXXI, they cut out all of the vegan stuff I talked about. And notably in this article for Yahoo!, the editor not only kept it in, but like added a few extra links because she's vegan. So we need to have vegan editors everywhere. I've had Seriously, my... and vegan everything else. Yeah. So 
One thing that was sort of annoying about this article is I get it as an editor. I get why they made the headline what they made it, but they sort of made it about the cost and the cost of course was it was financed and i had specifically bought a small inexpensive relatively inexpensive home to be able to afford this so touting the amount of dollars in the headline doesn't really doesn't really consider the fact that like it's financed and there's and i have a 30 year mortgage and 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 i i think it's going to discourage people from thinking that they can do it too yeah so i wasn't that thrilled with some focusing on how much it cost in the headline, which, you know, people would say, oh, well, I can't do that. Right. Because, you know, most people can't. <laughs> I'm making fun of them. Especially if you, like, you bought a house knowing that you were going to spend this money. Like you said, you bought, I mean, the real estate in Rochester is relatively inexpensive. Yeah, it was all part of the consideration. And, yeah. and uh, you know, it reminds me of, like, vegan vegan stuff or like vegan arguments too. Like if, if someone says one thing that would deter people from going vegan, that's all they will latch onto, you know, as opposed to, yeah. I can hear Fox meowing in the background. Yeah. The no, no. Fox is concerned that you didn't like the, the headline. He wanted it to be perfect. <laughs> well, anyway, so it, I, I will link to that in the show notes for people who are interested in reading it. By the way, the very next day, we had a meeting with someone regarding the possibility of like helping establish some policy that would make net zeroing much more feasible for most people and, and free, ideally, for lower income communities. So that is my goal. I'm not just stopping with my house, but like everything we do. No, of course do. not. Like yeah. if you were just stopping with your house, you wouldn't have like gone to all this work to get a, an article published. So yeah, spreading the word. That's key to all of this. I am going to be doing some stuff on my house that I can't, I can't accomplish quite as much as you can just because there are all these things like you have to have enough land and you have to have you know, all this and you have to have enough sunshine, but I am going to be doing some stuff. I'm not looking forward to it. The idea of having work people traipsing through my house, asking me questions that I don't know the answers to and making me miserable and scaring the cats doesn't thrill me for some reason, but you know, Got to do what you got to do. Totally. I get it. Well, there are, you know, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. I think you're actually an example of how people can move toward a net zero existence without necessarily doing everything. Maybe it won't be net zero, but it'll be pretty close. It'll be as close as one could get. I mean, I'm not worried about it from a morality point of view, because I know that I can, for, I'm fortunate enough to be in a place where I can opt to supply my electricity if I make my home all electric from a, a renewable resource. Uh, you know, of course, it costs more money because it always costs more money to be a good person in this world, but it doesn't cost that much more. But I, you know, I kind of do worry since I, I I mentioned earlier that I was in kind of a dark place, you know, like whether we'll have the kind of experiences that Texas had last year where the grid like, you know, just isn't holding up. You know, I do expect things. I expect things to get tougher than they are now. I do. Yes, of course. Absolutely. Well, that's why I'm grateful for people like Christopher Sebastian, who is our guest today, as you mentioned. And, you know, this was such an iconic interview for us that I think we should just get right to that. Absolutely. I can't wait. Christopher Sebastian is a technical writer, journalist, and digital media researcher. 
He is the Director of Social Media for Peace Advocacy Network, a senior fellow at Sentient Media, and former guest lecturer at both Columbia University and Cornell. Using a multidisciplinary approach that includes media theory, political science, sociology, and mass communications, he writes about how our attitudes about racial, sexual, and political identity shape our relationships with other animals. And he will be joining Jasmine right after this. Abbott's Butcher is leading the next generation of plant-based meat by using real food ingredients to craft premium plant-based proteins that are flavorful, protein-packed, and super versatile. Abbott's Butcher is the only plant-based meat brand that is free of soy, gluten, preservatives, and canola oil. And they never include any added natural or artificial flavorings. Their meats are absolutely delicious and so easy to prepare. Even I was able to do it. And as you might know, I'm not the best cook in the world. I particularly enjoyed the chorizo, which we prepared alongside a bunch of vegetables as a sort of taco salad. It was so good and so easy. And I myself mostly eat gluten-free and mostly eat whole foods. And this fit right in. We also tried the incredible chopped chicken and the ground beef. And the ground beef, I added some vegan cheese and it kind of gave me like a hamburger helper feel. I loved it. So look for Abbott's Butcher chorizo in Target stores or visit abbottsbutcher.com. And I'm going to spell that for you. That's A-B-B-O-T-S Butcher. Dot com. Again, it's abbotsbutcher.com. There's two Bs, one T. And that way you'll find a retailer near you. I love this and I know you will too. Welcome to our hen house, Christopher. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm really, really looking forward to talking to you. And I think we both said before we started recording that we're both nervous. I don't know if either of us know why, but we're just going to be transparent about that. We're both nervous. So we're in this together. And I think maybe I'm nervous because you're sort of iconic to me. Like I follow your work and, and I haven't really met you yet. So I just sort of feel like that Beatlemania thing that people get. Like it's it's Christopher. It's Christopher. Are you so, serious? Oh yeah. my God, no. Like I jump into my trousers with both legs, just like <laughs> everybody else. Well, okay, that's good to know. So I am going to get over my nerves and just sort of jump in. I'm going to jump in with like the big question, just <gasps> to get it out there. Uh, so we're going to go right in here. You have said that speciesism is situated inside a racist and classist system. So we're going from jumping into your trousers with two feet to speciesism being situated inside a racist and classist system. I know that this is a big question, but can you give us the overview of how you relate race to animal rights? Absolutely. Um, I like First of all, like me coming into this work was like was was kind of late. I feel like I've been following you and all of the people that I think are iconic for like far longer. I started down this journey maybe seven or eight years ago. And one of the first books that I read was The Dreaded Comparison, because after reading The Sexual Politics of Meat, 
I was curious about like how other people interpreted the relationship because Carol Adams had interrogated the relationship between like, you know, feminism and patriarchy and like eating meat and speciesism. And so I was curious, like what existing literature was out there that looked at this from a racial perspective and it absolutely floored me. So like, you know, that scholarship was just kind of like a launch pad in addition to like reading the scholarship of people like Breeze Harper. So with that understanding, like I know that like with a lot of people who are not already vegan and sometimes even with people who are, it's very unpopular to talk about that relationship between speciesism and racism. But yeah, like for me, like it's the opposite. It's hard not to because I, I recognize it so like so very clearly the animalization of Black people, of people of color by and large, and how identity or political identity like plays into our relationships with other animals and how we interpret that or like or how we integrate that into our relationships with one another. And you see just like throughout like you know, social media or throughout political discourse, how like that animalization occurs and what that looks like. The memes that have people like Michelle Obama portrayed as a monkey or like both of the Obamas, Serena Williams. It's so like, it's, it's so funny to actually see not funny, haha, of course, like, you know, how frequently black women are the targets of this animalization. But what's at the heart of that ends up being like my own interrogations. Like it's, it's the fact that like black people have never actually been seen as fully human ourselves. And like, you know, one of the first steps to depersonifying any group or taking away the rights of any group is to like, you know, is to present them as something that is either less than human or other than human. Which is why I say that speciesism is situated within that. Like even when you take go back to like the 1700s and the 1800s and you see the theories of like polygenesis, which already like, you know, as a scientific in air quotes there theory that posits that like different races actually come from different species, which even though we know intellectually that that's not true, we don't actually see that played out in society. So much. So like we 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 haven't moved on in meaningfully significant ways since then. And mostly European people have used this as like an impetus to own black and brown people. I know it's really sensitive to talk about, and I try to approach it as sensitively as possible, which means that this isn't a conversation that I'm going to have with somebody when I'm say leafleting. For example, this is something that like, you know, is happening in like, you know, in classroom settings and like, you know, in settings where people are aware of like what they're getting into and can meaningfully consent to this type of dialogue. Because if you're not prepared to have it and you're not aware that you're getting into it, then like, you know, this is going to come across as absolute lunacy for a lot of people and like, you know, an incredibly degrading and dehumanizing for black and brown people who are like, you know, largely like wrapped up in our own ideas about speciesism, if we even know what it is to begin with. Mm. Okay, well, there's a lot there that I want to sort of unpack. <laughs> so I want to sort of focus for a moment on the current, I'm going to say institutional animal rights movement. So what's wrong with it? <laughs> what's wrong with it? <laughs> Nothing. What's wrong with the current animal rights movement? Like, let's focus on that. And then what can we do 
better? Because this has been a big topic of late in the animal protection world. And, you know, sometimes I don't know if I'm just like really in a bubble in that, in the fact that this is a focus. So I'd love your insight. Is it a focus? Like, I don't know. Like, we could spend a whole hour just talking about that alone. Like, I think that it becomes a focus a couple of times a year. Usually in the United States, we see Black History Month come along and, like, people largely, like, have stopped doing this with me because, like, be- because I'm I'm quite vocal about it. But it's usually sometime in, like, you know, late December, early January. Oh, we're putting together a list of Black vegans or, like, you know, or something. And so it's like, oh, it's February is coming up, so I guess we're doing that. And in the UK... Like, you know, you have Black history happen in the fall and it's October. And so, like, you go through this whole thing again. That is really disappointing. The animal rights movement or the animal protection movement, and I never know what to call it, or even if, like, you know, indeed they are the same movement. So I apologize if I'm clumsy about language around that. But, like, I, I think that there, there is a problem with race as there would be a problem with race in pretty much any movement for any type of liberation that is not led primarily by people of color. And I I think that that's like, that's one of the central things that we would look at. Like, you know, largely the presentation of animal rights and animal liberation is white middle class. Some of that is by design. And some of that, I will absolutely say, is something that is a perception that people outside of the movement are quite comfortable with. Because if you can say like, oh, this is just a bunch of middle-class white people who are doing middle-class white things, then it alleviates one's responsibility for meaningfully engaging with like, you know, our own bigotry toward like other species. And so like, you know, you, you see from within the movement, this is the face of it. And outside of the movement, people who are very comfortable making sure that it stays that way or at least in their own minds, because the consequences of that would mean, would mean like, you know, having to rethink how we treat other animals. And that's, that's incredibly difficult. And I don't think that like our problems with race and race relations are necessarily intentional. Like much of the racism that we experience is actually institutional. And as such, many people don't really think about it. Don't think about what what they're doing or what, like, you know, or the ways that we engage with one another um, in our advocacy. And that's something that we definitely need to work on. Like, as a broad overview, that's like, that's what I can say about, like, institutional animal rights and animal protection, the way that it exists right now, at least in North America and much of Europe. And that's, that's actually another thing that, like, you know, that, that, that really needs to be addressed. The fact that, like, we don't really highlight how like animal rights and animal protection look in the rest of the world, like in the global South, in Asia and in, in African countries. And I think that that's a real, like, you know, that's a real shortcoming that we, that we have. And one of the things that I would definitely like to see us address in much more meaningful ways. I'm not sure how you're going to answer this next question, but in light of everything you just said, do you ever know how you're going to, do you ever surprise yourself when no the thoughts idea. come out? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just wonder if it's like you're figuring things out as you talk because you're, it seems like you've been thinking about this stuff forever. And when you say you're fairly new to the animal world, I'm surprised because I just am like, oh, that, that makes everything you're saying makes so much sense. So With that said, where do you see the most important leadership coming from vis-a-vis 
I'll call it animal rights now. And I also don't know what to call it, by the way. (laughs) Animal advocacy, animal protection, animal rights. We're using these words quite interchangeably right now. The vegan movement. I don't even know what the vegan movement. But anyway, (laughs) where do you see the most important leadership coming from now? Or is that even, is that question worded incorrectly? Maybe the leadership doesn't come from the animal protection movement. What are your thoughts? Oh, boy. I think that the best leadership, the most exciting leadership that I see comes from the grassroots. And like, you know, and I I get excited about that because I, I think that our institutions or the nonprofit industrial complex, as some may call it, like it leads to a lot of a lot of co-opting, a lot of focus on on things that I wouldn't necessarily agree with, a lot of focus on consumerism a lot of focus on capitalism, but from the side of like, you know, the capitalist class, as it were, and and not from the the perspective of the working class. And I think that that's what the grassroots organizations and, and small groups that I see, that's what they get right. And that's one of the things that like, you know, that I really appreciate about them. And these things aren't universal either. Like, you know, like for example, I would count organizations like Food Empowerment Project as like a nonprofit. It is a nonprofit. But at the same time, it is very grassroots because like it's very focused on a specific region of the United States particular like groups of working class people, people who are part of like, you know, multiple overlapping identities, farm workers, people of color, people who are working class and like, you know, and, and people who who generally are, are invisible in the larger like in the larger movement. And as such, I think that like the the, the folks who are operating at Food Empowerment Project do an incredible job raising the issues of of farm workers, the people who pick our vegetables, the people who are exploited in the agricultural system. And of course, like Lauren Ornelas has been like the founder and executive director, and she is herself a Chicana woman, as she self-describes. And she's just an absolute powerhouse. I really look up to her and I really appreciate the work that she does and every opportunity that I'm able to just like highlight the things that she does and and that FEP does within the movement and also for like several different minoritized or marginalized groups of oppressed individuals. And like, and I think that that's really, that's really important. But then I look at other organizations that focus on like developing cultured meat or focus on like consumer trends or like introducing new products into the supermarkets or into restaurants or like whatever have you. And I think that that's where a lot of the like institutional power and focus goes and like, and as such, and I don't, I don't make people wrong for that, but I think that it, well, it marginalizes. It puts it puts on uh, it puts on the margins the actual animals themselves, and I get why like there is a temptation to do it. I get the reward in like in doing that. Like people are afraid of animal rights. It's really scary and really overwhelming and intimidating to have to talk to people about like animal oppression. People have absolutely no idea what speciesism is. And like, what do you mean? I have to like think of animals as actual persons. And that's not a conversation that people want to have. And so it's easier to sideline animals 
as an issue or speciesism as an issue or as a meaningful oppression itself and focus on like, well, I can just focus on changing people's eating habits. But changing eating habits is only one aspect, in my opinion, of changing our relationships with other animals. And that may or may not come with people actually confronting the realities of what speciesism is. And it also hyper-focuses on food in a way that I think really it hamstrings the vegan movement, the animal protection movement, and all <laughs> of the very various like ways that we refer to the movement because we have ceded over to the mainstream the narrative for upwards of 30 years. And now we're living in a world where we think of veganism as a diet and not this radical stance that, 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 like, that people had like 50 years ago that is so powerful when you actually stop to think about it longer than 50 years, like, you know, as, as like, um, as I actually think about my math there, but, but really like, you know, the, the revolutionary idea that like, you know, that, that we should exclude animals from our lives as like, as, as exploitable resources, that's like, that's absolutely staggering. And when we reduce this to like a dietary choice, we don't think about like the animals that are part of our textiles, the animals that we use for entertainment, the animals that are exploited in, in like literally a dozen different ways. Now we leave the door wide open for people to absolutely like, you know, make accusations about like about health or mostly baseless accusations of that and allow people to say that like, oh, well, this is classist and this is elitist and, and, and all of these many other things that like the people say. And sometimes these things are very much rooted in, in classism and ableism and all of that. But people use it as a cudgel in order to like, you know, in, in order to further minoritize animals. And that I think is a problem. And we want to minimize that. We want to reclaim the revolutionary idea that like that the other animals are not exploitable resources. That's something that I think is lost when we allow institutions to get away, get away with what they do. Yeah. I, it's, you know, our, at our hen house, we talk to everyone across the gamut who are changing the world for animals in a variety of ways. And by the way, I am thrilled to hear you talk about grassroots because that was like my roots here in this world were in grassroots in New York City. My bedroom in this tiny little apartment was full of these leaflets that I would go to sleep and they would be by my feet because that was the only spot that they would fit. And this the protest signs would fit behind shelves. And it was cool. Like it was cool times. And I didn't obviously realize how quickly it would shift into what it is now. And I think that's partly what our hen house was born from, just like an exploration of all of the different ways people are working on this. How would you describe your personal theory of change, at least when it comes to animals? Oh, boy. I do think that it's super important to have like a plurality of approaches and operate from a plurality of of theories do i have a theory of change i'm not even sure (laughs) i think that like my my focus personally has evolved in in a lot of ways and i'll reiterate that like i don't make people wrong for like focusing on food my god i absolutely love new products i will go to the grocery store every day and buy something new and vegan that i haven't tried before 
just side note, if anyone is listening to this, I think we have enough burgers. Um, just, <laughs> but there, we need some more hyperbole around yeah. the burgers because we've got beyond and impossible. We need like know, amazing, right? <laughs> otherworldly. I'm definitely like you should. You should absolutely trademark that. I want otherworldly burgers to I be do a thing. Too. I should. Okay. Run down to the patent office as soon as okay. this call is when, over. As soon as we're done, I'm going to do that. <laughs> so that said, like I have, I've evolved from being very online and really trying to, like, well, a couple of things, like really trying to learn from people who have been in this movement for far longer than myself. Really trying to learn from the grassroots, as I said, because I think that they do extraordinary work with everything from food access to education and like and really we see this across the board not just with like the vegan movement but also with other social movements as well and like you know all of these things like they start in the grassroots and they filter up and then someone who is earning a six-figure salary who is the head of an organization it's like oh i came up with this brilliant idea it's like oh like, I, I think that somebody probably did five years ago and like, you know, and it's worked its way to you. But that's all. That's also OK. We won't get into that or maybe we will later. But um, <laughs> like I, I've moved into like more of an academic space and experimenting with with sometimes theory, but also like specifically with media and just like utilizing my own background to to relate to people better or to help people better understand this. And a lot of that actually comes from black feminism, like, you know, reading bell hooks and like, and what she's had to say about like the use of pop culture to, to help people to better understand theory, which is itself pretty dense and difficult for a lot of people to consume. And it's also time consuming. And so if you're time poor, like, you know, like nobody's going to sit you down and like, you know, and say like, here's like 40 books by people who've been dead for a hundred years, read that and get back to me that's a mistake but just making it fun and exciting for people Analytics actually just came out with a study talking about what like what's really effective advocacy and i was really surprised to see that like you know that like social media posts which of course with my media background and i having said that i'm i've been very online for a long time i was happy to see news articles was another one and me being in journalism that's something that was really exciting and classroom experiences as well and I'm like, oh, yes. Like, I felt like that was super validating to read that study and the results of their study because like, those are the three things that I have been doing, spending my time in the classroom and, and really recognizing that, like, listen, I've got these people who anywhere from 10 to 25 people like a semester at a time and really hammer away at like, you know, all of our preconceived notions about what it means to be vegan or to engage in animal rights or animal liberation or how important animal liberation is to all of our other work that we're doing or alongside all of that work, but also focusing on those news articles and just like kind of almost infiltrating spaces where you would be able to have like, have this enjoy like a, a level of effectiveness without working too hard, like kind of getting into these institutions, like, you know, these, these institutions, the fourth estate, like journalism, like academia, and really like being able to express exciting new ideas to people who like haven't really had to engage with that before. These are the things that I think are, are extremely important and really effective. And, and yes, of course, social media, we've seen how social media has had an effect on people's behavior, largely to the negative. And so like, you know, that's part of the reason why I have moved away from it, because I find it really difficult 
to manage communities in a way that doesn't turn toxic or reward outrage merchants or negativity. Like that's that's really hard work. That's really hard work. I I leave it to much better people than myself. But yeah, like th- those are the, the those are the ways in which I have like you know I've largely been engaging with animal rights for probably now the past ten years. Well, as a specialist in media, how do you feel that the animal rights movement should be using social media most effectively, like both at the institutional level and the individual level? Oh my God, Jasmine, are you telling me to pull out the magic wand or the, the pixie <laughs> yeah. dust? Oh boy, like I've talked to people about this many different times and, and many different ways. And I, I wish that people would listen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, our listeners will listen. So <laughs> this is good. This is good. But like institutionally, like I actually said after the 2016 election, I really want people to pay attention to the way that social media affects people, how it really like manipulates our cognitive behavior. And it can be used for good. It really can be, but we have to be very intentional about that. The way that political campaigns and politicians use social media, especially targeted advertising, is almost with scalpel-like precision. And you see that over and over again. Or more specifically, you don't see it. Because if you're not part of that targeted group of people, the advertising is so ephemeral, like it appears in your feed on Facebook or Instagram or whatever have you. And then it's gone, unless you actually take a screenshot of it or record it on your screen. Like, you know, like it's... It's, it's there and then it's gone again. And like, and if you're not part of that group of people, you don't even know that it's happening. I can have my phone out and like, you know, and scroll through my feed and stand right next to someone who like, you know, I may be very good friends with and not have any idea what they're looking at or what they see. Institutionally, I think that it would be smart of people who are part of like the animal rights community or like nonprofit organizations to I don't want to say exploit that because it has negative connotations, but really meaningfully engage with people. And I do see some organizations um, starting to do that, learning to engage audiences and do sort of that deep canvassing online that politicians have been engaging with like for, for absolute ages. What I don't want to see people doing, and this is on the individual level, is getting into nasty knockdown drag out fights with people getting into those flame wars is that's really not what's up engaging in online pylons i think that that's it may be entertaining i'm not going to say that it isn't but i don't think that it is the most productive use of our time online community building is something that i think that we should probably be doing more of and back in the day because i'm 100 years old So I get to say back in the day, like back in the day, we had like, you know, a a, a much more democratized internet where people had to work for their communities. You had to go to, say, Black Planet. You had to go to Yahoo groups or whatever. And you you either received a daily digest from them or you went to your, your specific groups and like you engaged with conversations with people there. Does that mean that all of those conversations were cooperative and uplifting and like revolution? No, it absolutely doesn't. But like, you know, but there was a much smaller potential for people to get into the nasty types of flame wars that we see online. We didn't seed all of our critical thinking and opinion making to the outrage merchants, as it were, who had the loudest voice. And that was part of Web point, uh, 1.0 if you will. Now we're living in an internet space where a lot of our, like, there's not a lot of unclaimed real estate um, on social media, if you will. Like, you know, you've got Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, 
And so like we've, we've had to like reorganize ourselves in a way that, that isn't necessarily set up for having productive conversations. We're ruled by algorithms rather than going to groups like I had described before that put like inflammatory or incendiary content right in front of our faces and demand our outrage. And like, you know, we're, we're living in the attention economy now and we respond in that way. So like, I think that if we're more intentional with our social media use, I think that we will see better gains. Don't look for a news article that like, you know, that has negative comments on it and then like, you know, shoot off, like, you know, find your targets and shoot off a bunch of opinions. This sounds like really chaotic advice because like all of the platforms are different. And so we have to treat them differently. Primarily right now, I'm talking about something like Facebook, but curate your social media experience so that you you personally don't suffer with your own mental health and you're not causing other people to suffer either. I think that there is like, I was actually just, oh man, I'm thinking about like a podcast that I was listening to a couple of weeks ago that was actually talking about like one of the social media communities that is at, in Vermont. It's going more into what I would call like the web 3.0 or 4.0 space where we kind of reclaim that Wild West feel of 15 years ago. But moderating communities in a way where you can only post once a day. You have to have a lot of stamina to like carry on an argument with somebody if like this is your one post that you get today. So you better make it count. It it immediately reduces the air in the room and and takes that out. Like, you know what, am I going to post a dog pic? Am I going to respond to something that actually meaningfully serves me? Or am I going to get into these fisticuffs with this person that slightly disagrees with me or or the bigot? Like, you know, like what's, what am I going to do? Like, you know, with, with, with that. And I think that's, that itself is so revolutionary, kind of like reclaim our social media lives from the algorithms, if you will. I think that TikTok, while there is a potential for like some incredibly damaging behavior on TikTok, and we can talk all about social media from there, I think that TikTok actually has a very different experience from like, say, Facebook or Instagram. Like TikTok does not put the comments right up front. You move from video to video with like rapid fire breakneck speed. And so like there's a time suck there. And there are some studies that are starting to emerge that indicate that this has a negative impact on our short-term memory. So limit your time, but there is a lowered potential for you to get into fights with people because you've moved on to the next video before you actually click on the comments most of the time, most of the time. And TikTok's algorithm may or may not be geared for outrage, but I'll tell you what, I don't see Nazi talk. I don't see right-wing talk. I don't see bigot talk. Their algorithm is curated in such a way that you see exactly what you want to see. And you have to work a little bit hard to get to that other side of TikTok to see the things that you don't want to see. So I think that that's like, you know, that's a good experience. Twitter, I don't know. Let's see what happens if like, you know, if Elon Musk continues with his bid to buy it, which is kind of shaky right now. That, that may or may not happen. But that's what I would want to see on the institutional level, the, a better use of targeted advertising to actually reach out to specific audiences in a way that's going to meaningfully connect with them. And on the individual level, I would love to see people like just more engage with the angels of our better nature. Um, and I have not always done that myself. And But engage in much less toxic, damaging, emotionally abusive behavior online and not give those platforms the satisfaction of, of doing that and no one to step away. That's what I would want to see. That was a very long answer. I'm sorry. Well, no, it was actually really valuable. And you brought me back to like the very late 90s 
of internet <laughs> when I was tw- I was around 20 at that time and I just remember like really wanting to go and connect to like AOL and the like that horrible noise of the connection and you're sitting there waiting so there's a wait element <laughs> and then I found like these you know my world was Broadway so I found these old gay men in all of these like Broadway spaces and they became like my friends and the most outrageous thing I would post is that like Patty Lapone was robbed of her Tony. And, <laughs> and that was, and then you go to bed and that was it. So it's just, it's, it's true. Like it has gotten the better of us. And I, I love the way that you're talking about sort of either having groups manage the quota or maybe you self-manage the quota, like having a consciousness around what we're doing, both in terms of the quality of what we're posting, but also in terms of the quantity, I think will help us in immeasurable ways. That's great advice. Patty Lapone was robbed of that, Tony. I agree with you. I agree with you. (laughs) So what about mainstream media? Like, will it ever be possible to get it to cover animal issues deeply and fairly? Absolutely, yes. I'm not saying that it's going to be easy. I'm optimistic. And I do think that this goes back to popular culture and our use of popular culture. I'm very, like, I have to say, I, I, like, I am so grateful. I lead such an, a, a fantastic life. And I like, have to remind myself how grateful I am for that every day. I got to write an essay for a book that is being published by Amelia Quinn and Laura Wright. And it's, it's the Edinburgh Companion for Vegan Literary Studies is what it is. And like Amelia Quinn is brilliant, by the way. She, like everyone references Carol Adams because she's like the great, great granddam of, of vegan theory. And I appreciate her so much. But like Carol Adams had written, and there's going to be a point to this story, but she had written a chapter in the sexual politics of meat around Frankenstein. And... And Dr. Quinn, Amelia, she had taken that as her inspiration for developing a a literary theory or like a theory around a literary trope of the monstrous vegan, because Frankenstein's monster, of course, as presented, like, or as argued by, like, Adams, is vegan or vegetarian. And so what exactly is a monstrous vegan? And I think that there are like, there are four qualities or, or characteristics that characterize what a monstrous vegan is. One, they don't eat meat, obviously. Two, they are born or birthed outside of, like, the confines of heterosexual reproduction. And, like, you know, of course, that fits with, with, with Frankenstein, too. They have an attachment to l- literature. And there is a fourth quality that I can't think of right now. But, like, you know, but, but borrowing from Quinn's work, I actually got to write a chapter on Wicked which was originally a novel in the mid-90s. Like, we're going back to the 90s, you and me here. Like, I think we're, like, roughly the same age. But, like, I read Wicked back in the day, and I thought that it was absolutely brilliant. But then the the Broadway production, the musical, came out. And so many of the elements of the or- original novel have been stripped away. And now we're talking about a film adaptation, too, which, like, potentially will remove further remove those elements. And so many people, when I talk to them, have absolutely no idea that, like, Elphaba, the Wicked Witch of the West. Like, this is the story of a person who, this is her her origin story, if you will. She was a radical animal rights activist. She was a political dissident. I, I couldn't, I saw Wicked, like, maybe 15 times, to be honest. And I couldn't believe that not everyone around me realized that this is an animal rights story. Like, I didn't understand. Like, it's right in front of you. It doesn't even require interpretation. She's freeing the monkeys. Like, She's what? the monkeys, literally. 
Literally. Like, it's so wild, isn't it? And that's the beautiful, again, I will use the word revolutionary nature of using pop culture to get our message out there in a way that connects with people that is not confronting, that is not confrontational, and really helps us to make that connection. And I hope that I was able to do it justice. But but really, being able to, to do that type of work with other people, with other scholars who are probably far smarter than me, I get so excited about that. And like, and and you do connect us to other movements as well, because like I quote Bell Hooks and her use of pop culture and what she had to say about it. But so much of this goes back to my late '90s relationship with other publications that I have been inspired by. I look at Bitch Media, which is now sadly closing this summer. I didn't and, know that. Oh, Bitch Media is is ceasing operations. I hope that I did not bring you down. Um, look it up. Wow. It is, it is incredibly like bitch media was such a huge thing for me. It was such a huge pop cultural phenomenon. But one of the things that I thought was so subversive about bitch media is that like when it was just a magazine, like, you know, and I say just in air quotes because it was never just a magazine to me. I thought it was like, what? Even the word bitch, putting that into the like, you know, in, into the public lexicon when it was not popular to do so. And like, and really for women to reclaim that word was huge. But for me, like, you know, one of the big things about them was that they would, they wrote stories in a way that was just electrifying. Taking something that was popular in the culture, in the moment, pop culture, and like, you know, just taking something that was hugely popular in the moment and tying that to a larger story or like, or, or hyper-focusing on one element of it in a way that told that story in a different way is something that they, that the journalists and the writers there, that they did, that just blew my mind. And that was an inspiration for me as a budding journalist, as a budding author, or like all of those things. And like, I've looked at that and used that as a template for how I want to talk about other things as well. And commenting on animal rights themes in like, you know, in, in books, in film. And focusing on the very obvious things that are under our nose or that should have been under our nose the whole time or that we had overlooked and bringing that to the forefront and putting it right in people's faces where we have to stop and say, oh, I did not recognize the importance of this, the relevance of this and how it ties into all of the other things that I'm working on. And that that is a huge inspiration to me. And so this is another way in which I see all of these things working together like how feminism works together with like anti-speciesism work, how, how anti-speciesism work is so important and so relevant to Black liberation work, to queer liberation, and so forth and so have you. And so that's like, you know, that's, that's huge for me. And it would be like, you know, irresponsible for me to not acknowledge that in this, in this conversation. But, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that answer so much. I feel like that's like my favorite. First of all, you brought in Wicked. Like, I can't. <laughs> anyway, I'm just going to listen to that answer. That's so true. And It's published uh, I, by I, Oxford I, University Press. It's going to be out in the fall. <laughs> I I'm so excited to read it, to get it, to cover it, all of the above. So let's dig in a little bit to Black liberation and queer liberation. You've mentioned that you have encountered non-vegan audiences who feel that animal rights comes at the expense of Black liberation. What is their argument and how do you address it? 
Yeah, like it's it is a friend of mine, Zarandrian Morris, who actually is the person who like led to me teaching for a very long time at Columbia. She talks about a scarcity mindset. And she, by the way, like full disclosure, is not vegan herself, but she's a trans black woman and she is an absolute powerhouse too. But she she talks about this scarcity mindset that so many of us are inflicted with where we see like this sort of zero sum game where it has to be either or, or we talk about like things as binaries when there is no black and white, like, you know, there is no binary other than the one that we have ourselves created. And so like, you know, and, and it, it really benefits the systems and the institutions that we have in place that oppress us and that we look at these things in a binary and it's not limited to like animal rights. It's not limited to animal rights and black liberation. Like we see this all the time with black liberation and queer liberation. There are people in my family right now who talk about, they call the, like the, the, the alphabet mafia or the LGBTQ, ABC, like you and me and, and whatever in a very mocking and derisive way and how quote, they, are doing whatever have you, or that like black rights are coming at the expense of like, or excuse me, like queer rights are coming at the expense of black rights without any realization whatsoever that like, that I'm sitting right in front of them as a queer and black person at the same time, at the same time. So many of the people who have fought, who have been arrested, who have died for black liberation have been queer and are so right now. And so like aggregating these things out and pretending that like we are all not part of a minoritized community is to our detriment. It only benefits our oppressors. When people say, oh, the Mexicans are coming over to the U.S. to do whatever it is that I guess Mexicans are doing, live. And that's going to take away from my rights. Like, you know, when we that when the United States inevitably like succumbs to being a minority majority nation, Latinos are likely to be one of the largest groups. That means absolutely nothing because Latinos are still like minoritized. They're still experiencing oppression. Like, you know, it doesn't take away from my black justice, like to support other minoritized communities and vice versa. So yeah, the idea that we should compartmentalize our justice or that we have a necessity to compartmentalize our justice is ahistorical and completely senseless. It's completely senseless because it never has been the case. And we are more powerful by recognizing like our solidarity or as Patrice Jones would say, like the commonality of our oppression. Right. There's something that I want to ask you related to all of the above. And, you know, Patrice is an interesting transition here because back in 2006, the first article I wrote that was published in the animal protection movement was for Satya magazine. And it was called Coming Out for Animal Rights. Patrice was a big part of that article. She was really helpful for me as a younger person trying to figure this out. It was about those overlaps of of oppressions, the commonality in the mindset of the oppressor. And at that time, I had also reached out to Marianne, who's my co-host for our house, also my former partner. And I found this email that I wrote to Marianne this morning, like the very first email I ever wrote to her in 2006, which was very funny. I like misspelled her name. It was very funny. Anyway, I then was talking to Marianne about my interview with you. She was helping me to prepare. And she was like, within the context of me finding this old email, she was like, Christopher could probably answer that 
original question you asked me a whole lot better than I was able to. And it was about those overlaps between the LGBTQ movement and animal rights and between the commonality of the oppressor and the and just the various overlapping issues. This was core to my animal rights activism. I came from the AIDS awareness movement. I came from the LGBTQ world. And when I think of that old article, it seems very basic to me. Like it it was big for me at the moment with drawing the connections, but I feel like something has evolved in the last, you know, 15 years since I wrote it, 16 years. And I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about those overlaps, because one of the things that Marianne said to me in that original email was, most of the queer people I know do not make this connection. She was coming at it from the other side. I was coming at it from the side of like, well, the LGBTQ people I know are curious about the connections, but they're all vegan. She was saying, I know a lot of animal eating queer people who couldn't care less. So can you help me sort of untangle this a little bit? Like, should queer folk be more sensitive to animal issues? And if so, why aren't they? And what do you see as these overlaps? Oh, child. That's another like 40 minute question. Um, I'm going to try to sum this up in like in five minutes, but only because I recently answered this question and had been writing about it in anticipation of Pride Month. But yeah, first of all, I will say good on you that obviously if you haven't grown in 15 years, I, I will not even read something that I wrote 10 years ago. Like I, I look back at then like baby Christopher and I'm like, Ooh, shop. <laughs> you had so much growing and learning to do. And then you did it. And, and then you did it like, Holy smokes. In 2006, I was barely vegan and you were already writing importantly about these things. And I'm like, this is like, this is why I have to look at other people like yourself who have been doing this for so long and honor the fact that like that people have been writing foundational material for 20 years or more, for 20 years or more. And like, that's so incredible to me and very, very humbling. And so oh, I thank well, you for that. Well, thank yeah. you. And I do want to, Patrice was really the expert and like I was basically, she was telling me things and I was writing more or less her words. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, go, so I appreciate that. I'm giving credit where That's credit totally, is. Yeah, that, that yeah. is absolutely like anybody who knows anything at all about Patrice, that is what Patrice does. I think that like everyone who has ever talked to Patrice has written down her words in some form or another. And they go completely uncredited because Patrice doesn't give a shit. She is phenomenal that way. And I like, you know, I appreciate her too. And I will have another call with Patrice tomorrow. Um, <laughs> that that will and, and and we'll do it all again. But yeah, queer people should pay more attention to animal liberation, and I will explain why. And I will give a couple of examples here. In my thesis, like for for, for school, what I had written about, or one of the incidents that I had written about, was like an article that had happened in like 2019. Um, and I first read about it in the LA Times, and I thought that it was absolutely hysterical. Now, paraphrase the quote that had got me to thinking about this. It was a trapper who was talking about how young people are not wearing fur anymore. And because this was an article about fur and how it is becoming like less and less present or, or, or prevalent in fashion circles and in the fashion industry. And he was lamenting this. And he said that animal rights organizations, again, paraphrasing, are led by their terrorist organizations. First of all, they're terrorist organizations that are led by lesbians. 
and they're gonna come for hunting too in their after we're done much. cuddling with our cats yes. and and having our kitchery and going to bed by eight thirty. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. And in their ongoing march toward communism, they're gonna take away <laughs> hunting too. So he schools communism in there. And I was like, I thought, oh, well, this is rich. There's so much in like two or three sentences to work with here. Brilliant. Let's start with the lesbians. Why? Like, not only did he focus on people who were queer, and not only did he tie this to communism, there's so much to be said about that. He hyper-focused on lesbians and why lesbians. And what I argue is that he focused on lesbians because to the patriarchal like system that we live under and to people who revere it, lesbians represent the biggest threat because these are women who are so terrifyingly self-sufficient that they demonstrate that we do not need straight men. <laughs> yes! <laughs> and so whether he intends to do this or, or whether it is completely subconscious, and I do think that it's subconscious, that is one of the things that I observe. Like, it's so, so much of queerness has to do with the devaluing of women and female identity in one way or another. I would say that's like 75% of queer antagonism and homophobia right there. And transphobia too. And to tie this to, again, communism, I think is absolutely hilarious, but incredibly telling. Because I'm, I'm quite certain that like this person didn't even have any idea what communism is. He's right, by the way. Like I've, I've frequently told people since then that like, you know, this is all part of the manifesto. It's, it's on the website. Like, the, like we've got t-shirts about it. We're not even hiding it anymore. And I do wish that lesbians were like we're running these terrorist organizations because I think that we'd be enormously successful. Um, <laughs> if, we, if we had all lesbians doing this, we would have been mean, finished I'm, I'm in. ages I'm ago. Just, we'll start but, a, I'll make it happen. <laughs> Maybe so like like the, tell other people like you know we could we could have had this wrapped up by now. But the other thing, and the perhaps more important thing, is that like there's a recurring theme that is shared between like animal liberation and queer liberation, and that is the continued sexualization of queer people and the animalization of queer people. That's not so dissimilar to the animalization of, of Black people in the society that we live in. And why is that sexualization important? Because people hyper-focus on sex acts between queer people or same-sex couples. Anything that, that is a non-straight, like usually white, cisgender, like monogamous pairing is looked at as like as something that is so horrific and transgressive. But very frequently, you'll see people from politicians to the everyday pee person on the street who equate same-sex attraction to bestiality in one form or another. There's actually an example that from TikTok I pulled last week of someone doing this. And why is it bestiality that people so frequently reach for? And like, and really what I'll tell you is that it has to do a lot with projection. What I argue is that we project, like we hypersexualize queer people and we project bestiality on queer people as a cover for what mostly heterosexual people are doing. The three things that I had identified are that like, number one, people are already having sex with animals or I should more specifically and explicitly say people are already sexually assaulting animals. Most of the people that are doing that are not queer. And people largely, the number three is that like people largely don't care that like, you know, that people are committing sexually, sexually violent acts against other animals. 
as long as we are benefiting from them. Because most of the bestiality that occurs in this world is occurring on a farm someplace. It's occurring when we reproduce or forcibly reproduce companion animals. It's occurring when we like create these new lives in these incredibly exploitative systems every single day in the service of capital. That's what we're doing. And we take all of that violence and we project that onto queer people in the most disgusting and dishonest fashion possible. And this is why we need that solidarity between queer liberation and animal liberation. Because we should be able to step up and recognize that it is because mostly heterosexual people are doing this for the purposes of capitalism or in the service of capitalism and in the service of patriarchy and in the the, the, the service of like all of these violent, oppressive, exploitative systems. And we, we need to take a stand against that. We need to recognize that like we need to be in solidarity with other animals who are experiencing this type of violence. And what do we do instead? We engage in the gay rodeo, for example. We engage in all of these systems to prove that we are able to assimilate into these violent systems ourselves rather than try to dismantle them. And like we see that over and over again. That's the ultimate goal. Um, w- without even realizing like how incredibly queer the animal world is. If we force mainstream society to engage with the scientific reality that the animal world that we are a part of is incredibly queer. It takes like all of their arguments away. It takes all of their arguments. Oh, homosexuality is so unnatural. Oh, really? Oh, really? I beg your pardon? I got a couple of species over here, a couple hundred species, maybe over a thousand. They'll fly in the face of that like that nakedly ignorant and dishonest and inaccurate assertion. Like, what is all of this transgender business? Like, the performance of gender is a social construct. And there are animals out here that span the spectrum. There are so many books that are written on this topic. There's Evolution's Rainbow is actually a really good one that I recommend to people from time to time, which is also written by a biologist who's a transgender woman herself. And there's so much literature out here. We take the legs out from under the table of all of this queer phobia if we just open our eyes and recognize our inherent solidarity with with animal liberation. And that would be so powerful, Mm. so powerful if we actually do that. So yes, it is important. And yes, it does frustrate me to no end when people don't recognize it. Got to rewrite that article. (laughs) That's amazing. Oh, so we many need a second layers. edition. <laughs> yeah, I also, I interviewed, for people listening to this, I interviewed Carrie Hamilton about some of these issues recently. And she also sort of looks, I don't want to put words into her mouth. I believe she looks to Carol as sort of seminal, but from there grows other perspectives and from there grows other ways of looking at things, especially as the LGBTQ movement has evolved. So just some interesting thoughts speaking of looking back at things that we've written which indeed is painful in fact one of my things i've written happened to be a memoir oops so (laughs) yeah anyway (laughs) so i oh my god christopher i have so many 
more questions for you, but in the interest of time, I'll just ask you one more and then I'll hope that you'll come back. And then if you don't mind also sticking around for uh, some bonus questions for our flock, that would be amazing. Oh, the after party. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. We're going to let our hair down. So just a small little question to, to end on. Why do people who care about animals continue to eat them? I know that this is a this is not an easy question. I know that it's popular for us to say because we simply don't know, but we do. We really do. We know what happens to animals. We may not want to think about it on a conscious level all the time, but we absolutely do know. Even if we don't know the most horrific and traumatic details of what happens on a farm or in a slaughterhouse, we are aware of what we do. And I don't let people get away with calling it quote, an invisible system, if you will. It's not invisible. It's in front of us all the time, every single day. Like I'm telling you about it right now, you random person that, like, you know, that is not Jasmine. We're very aware of what we do to animals. So it's not that we don't know. And I don't even think that it's not that we don't care. It's that we don't care enough. We do not recognize how important this is. For everything, not just for our relationships with one another, but for the planet that we're living on. We don't recognize the the scale of the violence that we're enacting on ourselves. And like overall, like human beings are really terrible people when it comes to recognizing or assessing risk. We don't care about something until it is either almost too late or it is too late. We don't recognize the risk. So this is why we don't report on climate change in a responsible way. This is why we don't report on animal agriculture in a, in a very meaningful way, because this is, we don't recognize how important this is to our everyday lives. Um, and we, we, we trivialize it. Um, so, so yeah, like we just, we need to work on getting people to care more and, and recognize, recognize that. So there were applause coming from your dog in the form of a. I know, a, a, you know, it's so funny. <laughs> she she has never wanted to be on my lap for an interview. She's usually in the back on a chair. Like literally, the second we started, she started barking and was like, "Get me closer to Christopher." <laughs> and I'm sitting here like, I don't know. I'm trying to keep her calm because she's not generally a lap dog, but she's like oh. into this. She's into it. Oh. So anyway, wow. There's so many more questions I have for you. I'll I'll ask you a couple of them in our bonus segment, but. For our listeners, can you please tell them how they can follow your work and support your efforts and continue to get enlightened by Christopher Sebastian the Great? Is that that's your <laughs> full name, right? I think it stops at Christopher Sebastian. If, if there is like an addendum there, it's, it's the it's the pretty mediocre. Um, that's what I would say. But yeah, like my website is ChristopherSebastian.info. You can like find my email address there, and you can also get links to my social media. I am on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, even if I am not very active on those platforms right now. But it comes in waves. And when I have enough emotional energy to engage on social media, I, I come back to it. But yeah, like that's the easiest way for people to get in touch with me. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Christopher. This was such an incredible chat. And I just am an even bigger fan, especially knowing the theater stuff, like that we share that. I'm just like, what? <laughs> it's like my dream. You're like my dream. You brought you brought up Broadway and, and animal rights. Like, ah, thank We're you besties. so much. Yeah. Like- I was like, <laughs> why aren't we besties yet? So now that you said it on the air, we are. So thanks for being my best friend. And 
for joining us today in our house. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a blast. Greetings, listeners. Just a reminder that if you are a Flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up, or you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month or $100 a year at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Also, if you are a Flock member, please join us for our Flock First Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern, where we have inspiring guests and great conversations about activism and animals and life in general. So if you're a member of the Flock, check out that Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. And if you write to info at ourhenhouse.org, you can also set up a one-on-one conversation with me too, which I hope you do because I always have a lot of fun and I want you to also. And thanks so much for joining us in our mission to change the world for animals. Bye. Hello. These can be rather bewildering, quite daunting times, can't they? Which is why we set up the Vegan Life Podcast. It's a podcast all about vegan food with fun roundtable discussions between some of the greatest cooks in the world, from Michelin-starred chefs to experimental foodie bloggers. My mum made a vat of Bisto for every single meal, but would then stir like a huge tablespoon of peanut butter into the gravy. Makes it creamy. It almost makes the, the gravy taste like a nut roast. So come and break bread with people with the same values as you. Search for Vegan Life Podcast wherever you're listening right now. Anxiety surprising. For heaven's sake, no more vegan nuggets or meatless burgers. This is by one Oliver Morrison, and it's for Food Navigator. And he just feels that the industry must move on from its obsession with attempting to make plants copy meat. Don't go yelling at me on Twitter, but yes, we probably do eat too much meat. Well, you're right about that, Oliver. As someone who craves a tender, slow-cooked lamb joint more than anything, oh, God, I take zero pleasure in admitting this. Uh, he, he doesn't think that we should give up meat, clearly, but he does think that we should, we should cut down. But no, I'm not comparing eating meat to smoking or boozing. Creatine, carnosine, B12, heme iron, just a few of the nutrients you can't get from plants. Apparently, we're all dying. Us vegans are all dying. Try telling the story about that simply awful time you went to a cafe that had no vegan milk alternatives to the stunted kids in India. Like, what? (laughs) What? Apparently, if you drink vegan milk, you're, you're insulting children in India who aren't getting enough nutrients, even though it's entirely possible to be... uh, Anyway, I'm no anti-meat-eating propagandist. Well, you've already made that clear, Oliver. But the evidence tells us we need to eat more plants and fewer animals if we want a sustainable food future. At least you, you know, you are acknowledging that. I think it's kind of actually a really good thing that meat eaters, a lot of them actually do understand that we should eat less. And he also wants to point out that he loves vegan food. And he tells some long story about some great vegan meal he had once that uh, featured all these vegetables and whatever. But here's the problem. I don't want the lazy and ubiquitous vegan nuggets. I don't want a highly processed meatless burger made with imported soy and pea. Bring me real food. Bring me color. Bring me variety. 
bring me new textures and unfamiliar flavors. To quote another food-loving lush, come on, let's be having you. I don't know what that quote is from. His point is, is that everybody should eat just like he wants to eat. And because he eats meat whenever he wants to, probably 10 times more than he thinks he does, he, he doesn't have any interest in fake meat. Uh, well, it's, he does at least call meatless burger. So that's, the, that's how we should run the entire world, uh, because he thinks people should still eat meat. I mean, he's absolutely right that vegan food based in vegetables and all of the delicious plant flavors are absolutely fabulous. But, you know, people like to eat nuggets and people like to eat burgers and get over it. Like, like, <laughs> just get over yourself. No, the industry must move on from its fixation with alternatives designed to appropriate the texture, flavor, and appearance of real meat. No, it mustn't. Well, you know, and not if it's working. And we don't know yet whether it's working. You know, he likes to point out that, that it's doing really well in the UK and he feels it's not doing that well in the US. Who knows? But you know what? We need to replace meat, all of the meat, with, with, with something else. So get over yourself, Oliver. We don't all have to eat the way you do because you like to eat little baby lambs. And, you know, I, that's not that's what the rest of us want to do. All right. This is an anxiety rising bill pending in Missouri, of course. <laughs> Missouri always gets the best bills first. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing this pop up. I'm, I don't have anything to report, and I'm just going to tell you what it what it would do. It's called the Protection of Missouri Farms and Private Property Act, as if there isn't already enough protecting Missouri farms and private property. And what this would do is prevent any plaintiff from bringing a civil action on behalf of a non-human, including nature, animals, and ecosystems. Well, apparently they've been reading about the Non-Human Rights Project and about the rights of nature litigations going on in around the world, and uh they're nervous because they get nervous all the time because they, they know, like we know and they know that they're in the wrong and they just don't want anybody else to find out. All right. This is this poll. And I just thought it was interesting. So I'm going to tell you about it. It's, it's on some site called YouGov America. Nearly half of Americans support strengthening laws around animal cruelty. And I just thought, well, that's really great. And there's all this data. Women are more likely than men to say animals don't have enough legal rights. Well, that, you know, that, that tracks. Nearly half of Americans say animal cruelty laws are not strict enough in the U.S. Well, that's great. You know, I mean, it should be higher, obviously, a lot higher. But but it's good that that we're close to half, considering that there are virtually no movements in any legislature to strengthen animal cruelty laws. It's interesting to find out that so many people are in favor of it. Uh, and then it goes on to which places do Americans think should allow dogs? Okay. You know, apparently... You know, it's not that high a percentage that, that, that people think should be allowed to bring their dogs. So offices are highest than airplanes, shopping malls, and restaurants. All right. And then it, it talks, of, and then it goes on to talk about other pet related policies and issues. Well, are we talking about animals here or are we talking about pets? And the anxiety rising point I'm trying to make here, I'm taking a long time to get to it, is that people just conflate these things. I see it with my students all the time. There are always some students who take my course because they, you know, they want to learn more about stuff about dogs and cats. And it doesn't occur to them that there are other animals involved. And this article seems to be saying the same thing. I, like, I really don't know. They took this whole poll about uh, whether animals have enough legal rights. And from the rest of the article, it looks like maybe they're talking about dogs and cats, but they're using the term animals. So I don't even know whether they know what their poll means. Like people 
just start to recognize that there are other animals in the world. Uh, really a lot of them. Really, really a lot of them. All right. Finally, our final art article is from the UK. The dairy industry is blaming vegans for its decline. Now, doesn't that headline make you happy? <laughs> I, that's, that's the cheeriest headline I've, I've heard in a while. The subhead here, this is an article by Sophie Rosa. Brexit, rising inflation, supermarket monopolies? Nope, it's Oatly drinkers. I love this article. The dairy industry is blaming vegan, quote, cancel culture for its own woes. And this is, this is from Arla Foods, which is apparently Britain's largest dairy company. And they've, they've launched this new campaign called Don't Cancel the Cow. The campaign suggests that people's choices not to consume dairy are ill-informed and argues that the need to balance the conversation when it comes to food and the health of our planet. Well, I think the conversation has been way balanced for a long time. So I agree that it's time to balance the conversation. They did all this research that, that found that 49% of the UK would change their diet based on what they read on social media. And so they think that the problem is, is that vegans are on social media and therefore vegans are convincing other people. Like if vegans could convince anybody of anything, the world would be very different. But I hope it's true. I, I hope that, you know, the presence of so many vegans is just really starting to tip the scales uh, in a positive direction in the UK. There's this political economy researcher who um, opined that this don't cancel the cow campaign is significant because it reflects the industry's, quote, desperation in an increasingly inhospitable economic climate and general tendency to play the victim. Ain't that the truth? Wow. There's just no industry that is more skilled at playing the victim than the animal agriculture industry. And indeed, it does. this article does report that dairy farm profits fell by 50% in 2018 to 2019. Could that possibly be right? And have not recovered since. So no wonder they're upset. And they're just looking for somebody to blame. And I'm so happy that they're blaming us. I mean, obviously, one of the reasons for this seems to be Brexit. And the reason for that is really interesting. And it reports that 60% of dairy farmers voted for Brexit or said they would vote for it and presumably did. In spite of that, almost 40% of an average dairy farm's income came from EU subsidies. Well, the e I mean, this is the first thing I've heard in favor of Brexit <laughs> that makes it sound like it was a really good decision. 40% of an average dairy farm's income comes from EU subsidies. So now that the UK is out of the EU, the UK government is now planning to remove subsidies altogether. Well, this is just great news. I'm, this makes me very happy. This one commentator believes that dairy farmers are suddenly terrified because people are seeing what they do just as plant-based alternatives are growing in quality and popularity. And that is exactly right. I mean, there has been more, there was that huge TV program on the BBC, which, you know, really hor really reached a lot of people in the UK about dairy. And the, the thing that like seemed to have struck people the most was the taking of the calves away from the mothers, which of course it should, but people just don't know that. All right. So they're finding out more and more because of all of the campaigners and all the work that's being done. And at the same time, the, the alternatives are growing and that's exactly how we change the world. And that's why their anxieties are rising. And that's it for this week. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, we invite you to join the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. 
or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another way to support us is to leave us a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast, and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Vicki Bichler for her membership and administrative help. We'd also like to give a shout out to the amazing Veronica Kalinska, who designed our brand new logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for tuning in. Listener.